0: Of the Lord from Nehemiah 1, 1-11, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard those words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house has sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples." And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you today. Welcome to Sacred City Church. If you are new here, my name is Justin and I am the lead pastor here at the church. This is my second week back after a three-month-long sabbatical. I know some of you want to hear more about that sabbatical Um, I'll probably do a podcast soon, maybe this week on that. I'll let you know what I did, what I learned, what I read, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, But I I let you know that I was on a sabbatical because if this sermon falls short, I can just help you you lower your expectations a little bit this morning. I'm rusty, okay? Let's just blame it on that. Uh, But I do want to welcome you. Uh, This church, Sacred City Church, is a church that believes the Bible is the word of God. We love Jesus and we believe that God has called us to be in the words of Jesus, a city set on a hill, a sacred city. Jesus said in Matthew 5:14, "You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it's it's easy to try to take that Bible verse and put it on a coffee cup or put it on the cover of a journal and make it really just about us and our quiet time. But when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, that word, you, in the original language is plural. So we would say, well, maybe some of us would say, y'all, okay? Jesus is speaking here of a group of people. He's speaking of his people. He's speaking of the church. He's not just telling us that every single Christian is light. No. He's saying, as you are a part of the body of Christ... As you gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you collectively are to be a city, a city within the city. Together you are a city of light that is meant to do good works and glorify God in the midst of darkness so that others can see the light and give glory to God. I've been captured by this idea of being a city within a city for about 13 years. It's one of the reasons why we named our church Sacred City. We believe that God is calling us to be a city, a group of people collectively on mission, devoted to God within the Quad Cities. A city of light in the midst of darkness. A city of truth in the midst of foolishness. A city of goodness in the midst of evil. A city of beauty in the midst of ugliness. Now this summer, while on sabbatical, one of the books that I read was St. Augustine's The City of God. It's been a very large book on my bookshelf that has intimidated me for over a decade. I looked at, you know, you've probably got some of those, you order it on Amazon and it comes in and you're like, did somebody order a brick? And you open up the package and you're like, oh, that's bigger than a dictionary, okay. And then you get into it and it's written along about 600 years ago and it's, or 1,400 years ago, and it's pretty intimidating. Well, it's been intimidating me for a long time. It's been on my shelf, but I said, I got time. I want to read this thing. And if you don't know, the city of God is one of the foundational works of Western civilization, all right? I won't get into it. I won't give you a whole book review, but I want to teach you a couple things about it. Augustine wrote this in the year 410 after the Goths had invaded Rome and sacked and destroyed the city. Now, at that time, Christianity had overtaken the Roman Empire. It became the the dominant religion um, in the Roman Empire. It overtook paganism and all the Greek and Roman gods. And here's what happened. After the Goths came in and sacked the city and destroyed it, the people, the everyday citizen, and some of the philosophers started blaming Christianity. The reason our culture has been destroyed is because we abandoned the Roman gods. We abandoned the Greek gods that have kept us... Uh, kept our civilization together for so long. It's these Christians. It's this Christian God. It's this crucified God. It's this Jesus. That's why they sacked us and destroyed our culture. Well, Augustine wrote this book, The City of God, to dispel these myths. And literally, a lot of it is boring. A lot of it you're reading because he's attacking all of these different um, philosophical ideas that were around in that time. Those ideas aren't really, most of them aren't around in our day and age. But here is Augustine's kind of main point in his book. This, is, I would say, is his thesis statement, and I've got it for you up on the screen. This is about a 1,000 pages distilled in one sentence here. <laughs> two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt, contempt of the self. The former, in a word, glories glory in itself, the latter in the Lord. All right. Augustine here shows that there had, and he goes all the way through the Bible and he goes through all, all through human history up until his, his point in time, and he shows that there has only ever been and there only ever will be two. Types of people, two cities on this earth. Those that love God more than they love themselves, and those that love themselves more than they love God. So the controlling principle of one city is love and devotion to God at the contempt of myself. So I say, Not my will, but your will be done. But the other city, the city of man, so this is the city of God, this is the city of man. The city of man says, my way above God's way. My will above God's will. These two types of people make up two cities or two kingdoms on this earth. The city of God and the city of man. A sacred city or a selfish city. Those who live on this earth as citizens of heaven and those who live on this earth as traitors to King Jesus. Now as you read the Bible, you begin to see that these two cities are constantly at war with one another. And I don't just mean physically physically at war, though it has come to that many times. But spiritually at war, philosophically at war, culturally at war, that these two cities build kingdoms, these two cities build cultures, and those cultures rival one another. Now, what's really good for us is that Scripture tells us exactly how this war is going to end. Jesus, who is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father and orchestrating all things to His end and according to His will, he will return to this earth again and set up his heavenly kingdom on this earth and all of his faithful followers throughout all time will reign with him as he puts all of his enemies under his feet and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the meantime, the city of God and the city of man expands and contracts, pushes back, pushes forward. We win some ground and then we lose some ground. God is evidently far more patient than any of us are. We're all just like, what are you waiting for? Right, The day after the resurrection, everybody's like, come on, come on back. God is patient, way more patient than we are. And His kingdom is coming on earth, as it is in heaven, very, very slowly, it seems. Currently, in our culture, it seems that we are on the defensive, that we are actually losing ground that maybe our forebears had gained before us. But, and this is good news for us, it looked that way for Augustine, too. But Christianity would go on from Rome... And it would expand and it would Christianize Europe and it would come to the shores of the United States of America and it would spread across our continent. There would be several great awakenings. So who knows what God is going to do next? See, as our culture tries to deconstruct everything in our society that had its foundations in Christianity, what are we to do? Now, in one sense, that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. Too many Christians have never read or studied these books. And instead, they've been formed by fictional books like the Left Behind series that teach them to believe that Christians are just supposed to sit around do nothing, and watch the world get darker and darker and darker until Jesus raptures them off this planet. Now listen, those books are fiction, and they are based in a view of the end times that has only been around the last 100 years or so. Now if you came to faith in the last 30, 40 years, well most of us did, right? you you think that Most of you probably came to faith inside a church that taught a view of the end times like that. Things are getting worse, 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 worse. Finally, the whole world's gonna be terrible and Jesus is like, let me get my bride. Like he's just sitting up in heaven like, not bad enough yet. Come on, hurry up this sinning down there, let's go. That is a view that's only been around the last hundred years or so. No, what are we to do? We are to put our hope in the Lord And we are to get to work wherever we are for Christ and His kingdom. We are to build a city within a city. If deconstruction is the view that tries to tear down everything that had its foundations in Christianity, you could say that God is calling us to be reconstructionists and constructionists. We are to be rebuilders or renewers and builders. We are to rebuild what has been lost and we are to build new things for Jesus and his kingdom. Now, one of the interesting features of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that their cultural context were similar to Augustine's and similar to ours. They were writing they were not writing in a time of great revival and great renewal. Like you read the book of Acts and you're like that's what I want. I want to live there. And God's like, sorry, you're born here. Like Augustine is like, duh, the Goths just destroying our civilization. I would like to be born, and I'm reminded of a quote from the Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> Every man wants to be born in a different time, but we are born for this time right now. We don't get to choose how dark the days are. We get to choose who we are and what type of character we're going to be in the story. So these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, were writing in a time where it seemed like the city of God was flickering out. The city of God was being destroyed. It was a season when the city of man seemed to be winning. For that reason, I think these books are going to be really good for us to study. If you remember, we've already went through Ezra, and Ezra was about what to do first when you're rebuilding. If you want to build a city of God, you start with worship and teaching the scriptures. Worship or religion is the foundation for every society. Now, it's important for us to wrap our head around that. Religion is the center of every society, even a supposed secular society. A nation's culture its laws, its norms, its morals, its art, all flows out of its religion. So if you want a city that is truthful and honest and industrious and just and good, that city must have its, at its center the God who is all of those things. God doesn't possess those traits God is that way all the way through. Our society seems to forget this or they don't want to acknowledge this. They want to dismiss God and they want to put science or evolution or the rational mind at the center of all things and then say, here's our new moral standard. Here's our laws. Well, we could just say that's completely subjective. That's completely based upon your opinion and other cultures have different laws. You can't put man at the center. It won't hold. And that's why our society isn't isn't holding together right now. It's being pulled apart because something bigger than man's opinion has to be at the center. And that has to be God. So the first thing they do in Ezra is they build the temple. That's what Ezra was pretty much all about. Ezra was a priest and a scribe, if you can remember. He set up the temple, and then he taught people the laws of God. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah both are historical books in the Bible, so it's different when you're studying them, okay? It's not, a, it's not just a bunch of life lessons. It's not really devotional. It's not really worshipful like the Psalms has been. It really, uh, doesn't really shape us ethically like the commandments do in the Old Testament or, or the, the, the epistles do in the New Testament. It's a historical book. It tells about something that actually happened in history, and if, if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. They were written on one scroll. And most likely, they were united with First and Second Chronicles. Now listen, if you read 1 and Second Chronicles, it's a history of the kings and the ups and downs and the, and the uh, worship of God, the right worship of God, and then the, they, they, they walk away from God and it's up and down the whole time the last two verses of the book of 2 Chronicles and the first two verses of Ezra are the exact same. They're identical. And what conservative scholars believe is that, here it is, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah were all one book, but that scroll would have been over a mile long. So they chopped it up. That's why a lot of people don't, they don't know who the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles were. I believe it, it was Nehemiah. He's the last one writing it. He's, he's chronicling. He's putting everything together, putting Ezra's together, and then putting his own at the very end. I believe it was Nehemiah. He, so he wrote all four of these books, one long narrative, one long historical narrative, and then he chopped them up so they could be handled by the priests. So Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries of one another working together to rebuild the city of God. Ezra was the religious professional, and Nehemiah will come to be the governor. Now, modern liberal scholars debate this. I'm not going to get into it too much, but they think Nehemiah was written like hundreds of years later, uh, and that the Nehemiah that's mentioned in Ezra and the Ezra that's mentioned in Nehemiah are different, ne- are different Nehemiahs and different Ezras. and It's really confusing and ridiculous. If just when you read I don't have time to get into the debate this morning, but from a plain reading of the text, it seems that Ezra and Nehemiah knew each other. Their overlap, their work is overlapping with one another, and they're working together to renew Jerusalem for the glory of God. But this morning, this book doesn't begin with Nehemiah as a governor, all right? It begins with Nehemiah in Susa, the winter resort of the Persian king. So we're going to start there. Let me pray for us. That's a long introduction. I know, but I had to introduce the book. So. And then let's get into the text of Scripture, all right? Let's pray. Father God, we come to your word trembling this morning. Oh God, would you speak to us. Oh God, would you open our eyes. Oh God, would you teach us from your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is what we need. We need a word from outside of our culture. We need a word from heaven to speak to direct our hearts, to direct our minds. And God, you speak this word through your word and through me, a sinful man. So I don't want to mar your word. I don't want to um, twist it in any way. So I ask that you would help me speak your word clearly. Help me declare your word to your people and may your people hear your words and not mine. Father God, would your sheep be directed by you, the great shepherd of our souls? To do all, all this for your glory and our joy in Jesus name. Amen. All right, well, actually I'm going to start in Nehemiah 1 verse 11, just because we didn't really read it this morning, it's 11B, if you want to get to it, it just says this: Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now that means Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of Persia. The cupbearer was an important advisor. And it was literally the right-hand man to the king. He was the king's most trusted advisor, one of the most trusted men in all the kingdom, so much so that if the king ever was in doubt about his wine, he gave it to the cupbearer, and the cupbearer would drink it. Why? Because lots of people wanted to kill the king back then. Lots of, there was all kind of usurpers and all kind of people, that, traitors that wanted to overthrow the king. So the king never really knew if somebody got inside in his court and wanted to poison him. So he had this right-hand man, a cupbearer, that anytime time the king got nervous, he's like, you first. Now, that's a tough job, right? You're, you, you, this is probably why, in our words, Nehemiah was a Christian, right? Every single drink, he had to trust God with his eternal soul, right? Might be my last one here today, Lord, right? So Nehemiah is this trusted advisor to the king of Persia. Now, What's interesting about this fact is that Nehemiah, of course, was a Jew. He was one of the exiles who had been carried away out of Babylon. His family had been carried away out of, out, or out of Judah and out of Jerusalem into Babylon. He had been deported. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar deported the best and the brightest of the Jewish culture into Babylon. So what we see here right away in this text this morning, we see a man of God living faithfully to God in the midst of a pagan culture, and not just any pagan culture, but the upper echelons of a pagan culture. He's right next to the king, but Nehemiah, we could say it this way, Nehemiah is serving the king of Persia, but he only worships the king of kings, okay? So he knows where his his allegiance lies. First, God second to the king of Persia. Now, Proverbs 18, 16 says this, quote, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. What does that mean? That means a person's talents that have been given to them from the Lord, as you um, steward those well and shepherd those well and you become really good at what you do, your gift that God gave you can bring you before great people, and then that gives you a great opportunity. Now, just like Joseph and Daniel and Ezra before him, Nehemiah remains faithful to God in a pagan culture, and God lifts him up into an influential position where he can use his gifts for the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see is that God uses men and women, like Nehemiah, to build the city of God, to build his kingdom on this earth. So let's go in verse 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel. All right, now we don't, in the 20th year, he doesn't really tell us the 20th year of what? So conservative scholars, well, they're all over the place, but I, I agree with James Jordan here that he's speaking the 20th year since Ezra went back in and started rebuilding the work in Jerusalem. Okay, so the 20th year of Ezra's work, this is about to happen. He was in Susa, that um, Persian winter retreat, that Hanani, one of my brothers, now we don't know if we think this is probably actually one of his brothers or if it's just one of his Jewish brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Okay, Judah here is the the province. It was where the people of God possessed the land for a long time before they were exiled, right? And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. Jerusalem is the city. Jerusalem is where the temple was. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. Okay, bad news comes. Nehemiah, servant as the cupbearer to the king, his brother shows up. How's everything going back in Jerusalem? Brother says, not great. All right, not great. They are not doing well. They are in great trouble and shame. Keep reading the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now here's what's going on. The way a city was built in antiquity is you built the city inside a layer of walls. And walls, of course, were built to fortify and protect the city from war, what we would call terrorist attacks. People coming in and just killing, killing innocent civilians and robbing merchants and taking whatever they wanted and raiding the city. So the city, they would, they would build walls around the city and inside those walls, they would build gates. And those gates, of course, would, would, would be really heavy and they'd be lifted up and they'd be fortified. And, and that's how you would enter the city. When there was danger or Potential for siege, they would shut the gates, and the soldiers would defend the gates and defend the wall. Now, this is very similar to what our soldiers do when they enter into a combat zone, that they send in soldiers to take a house or to take a neighborhood or to take a city. And as these soldiers secure the real estate, they then Build walls around it. They build fences and barbed wire around it, and they have a secured gate or two that allows the base to function securely without being overrun by enemies. So the scenario here is that Ezra is back in Jerusalem. Remember, Ezra, back in Jerusalem. He's working hard to rebuild the temple. He's teaching people the Bible, and just like a religious professional, He doesn't really pay attention to much else, right? I got to be honest. I am a pretty focused person most of the time. My wife is the only reason my kids have clothes, and I actually have clothes that match most of the time. I am focused on what God has called me to do. I'm focused on reading the Bible. I'm focused on studying. I'm focused on being the man that God's called me to do, but I can get really myopic in my vision. I get really focused, and it seems like Ezra was like that. Ezra's like, God's called me to do one thing, rebuild the temple, teach people the Bible. That's all I'm going to do. He has, he's not even looking at the city and, and the walls that are torn down and all the stuff that's going around him right now. He's just focused on his task. And Nehemiah hears this and is concerned. The city, Nehemiah, or Ezra's focused on this sacred city, but the city outside has no protection, no walls, no gates, and they could be physically attacked and physically overrun at any moment. Now, Nehemiah hears this news from his brother. Let's see how he responds. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying Before the God of heaven, that term God of heaven, it's interesting, that is a universal term for God that was used in um, multicultural contexts between courts of different kingdoms met together. They would use that term God of heaven. What we see in verse 4 is that Nehemiah has a visceral, emotional, heart-level reaction. He is absolutely crushed when he hears the news. Like Jesus, who would go on to weep over Jerusalem, here Nehemiah is weeping over Jerusalem. He is weeping for the state of the city of God. He is weeping for the people of God. He's weeping for his church. He is a heartbroken, devastated man. Now, if you connect this with chapter 2, verse 1, you'll find that he fasted and prayed and wept for three or four months before he made up his mind what he should do. Now, this is not a normal response. I'm going to just say it like that, right? Human beings could not function in a sinful world if this was meant to be our normal response, right? every time you walked by a homeless person, you have this response. Every time you hear some bad news on the news, you have this response. Every time you hear something crazy that happened in the public schools that you can't get your mind around, you just, "Ah!" you just have this kind of response, right? Weeping for months. So what is going on? Well, I think what is going on here is that God, by His Spirit, for a very specific purpose, is actively at work here provoking Nehemiah. That God is opening Nehemiah's eyes to something special, maybe something supernatural, maybe something important, because he's got work for Nehemiah to do. God is giving Nehemiah a heart for the city of God. Now, I'm asking God that God would do the same for me and for you, for all of us together. That maybe for a moment, maybe for a season now, if you study historically the great movements of God, the great revivals and reformations, they've usually been preceded by moments like this. Somebody just gets fed up with it. Somebody just gets heartbroken. Somebody gets tired of it and says, I am fed up with this. God wants to do something here. Let's beg him to move. That's how the revivals of old have started. But for us, it's, our heart doesn't go that direction most of the time. And most of the time, honestly, if we're honest, it's because we've just got used to the darkness. It's all we've ever known. See, our city is in just as much spiritual ruins as Jerusalem was. Our churches are in disarray. The most beautiful, many of the most beautiful and historic church buildings in our city haven't even heard the gospel preached in decades. Decades. It's been literally decades since anyone was brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's been decades since anyone has felt grieved over their sin and repented of their sins, and been absolved of their sin and cleansed of their sins by Jesus Christ and resurrected to new life, called into the ministry. But since they are a part of a denomination... They've been going on for decades and years and years and years. They've got deep coffers and they can keep the lights on and keep the bills paid and keep a few people sitting out in the pews. You know our city has been one of the least church cities in the United States of America, according to Barna Research. That means the majority of those in our city do not know God. That means they don't know where to go to have their sins forgiven. Why is depression and anxiety and violence and self-harm and all of these conditions of the soul at record highs today? Because no one knows where to go to have their soul healed. They don't know who the soul healer is, and that's Jesus Christ. Too many pulpits, all that's being preached is a repackaged version of what the culture is selling. That's because our city, and because of that, because of the secularization of our pulpits and our churches, our city is getting more and more secular, more and more confused, more and more violent and dark and depraved. Why doesn't this move us like it did Nehemiah? Why don't we weep and pray and mourn and fast and beg God like he did? Honestly, I think it's just because we've gotten used to it and we don't have the eyes of faith that can believe it can be any different. It's all we've known, maybe. Well, I'm asking God, To do what only he can do. I can't do that. I can't provoke that. I can't create that in myself. Only God can do that work in us. I'm asking God to give us a heart like Nehemiah here, to provoke us like this. Let's get back in verse 5. Okay, so the first thing he does, sits down, he weeps, he mourns for days, he fasts, and he prays. Now we're going to see some of that prayer. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven. Now, this is interesting. O Lord, God of heaven. Nehemiah is combining two two words here, combining two terms. O Lord, Yahweh, right, the God of the covenant, the God who's revealed himself specifically to Israel, God's people, and God of heaven, this kind of universal term of God. He's saying God is the only God of all the kingdoms of men. Every other God is a little g-god, okay, All the other gods of the world, world religions, are nothing but idols. They're nothing but demons. They are not God. Only God, Yahweh, is above all. He created it all. He sustains it all. The great and awesome God, look at this, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, that word is hesed in the Hebrew, and it's a very important word they translate it steadfast love. I like my term, my definition of of steadfast love is God's never ending, always pursuing one way love. That God sets his love on a people. He makes a covenant with them and there's no turning back. There's no stopping it. God's love is a conquering love. He puts it on me and I receive it Even if I'm shaking my fist at it, it's an overwhelming love. He's the hound of heaven. He conquers my will, and then I say, thank you for doing that. That's what I needed from you, Lord. Nehemiah here is acknowledging that God has made a covenant with human beings in the past, the people of Israel, that he had, remember this, remember the whole story. He chose Abraham, right? Abraham is a moon worshiping pagan. And he calls him out of that and he chooses him, not because, you know, Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make you, a, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great nation out of you. He had chosen them, he had forgiven their sins. Uh, when, when they grew up and they went into Egypt, Right With Moses, he raised up Moses and he rescued and he had redeemed them out of Egyptian slavery. Then God gave them his commandments and he gave them his laws and his statues and said, this is how I want you to live. This is your ethical requirement of living. I'm gonna give you that land, Judah. That land's gonna be yours forever and ever. Here's what I'm asking of you though. I'm, so I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you redemption. I'm putting my love on you that you did not deserve. And all I ask from you is in return, you would love me and obey me. That's it. And if you love me and obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me and you hate me and you walk away from me and you worship other gods, then you're going to be scattered. You're going to be cursed. And we saw all through the Old Testament up until this point, when they loved God, when they obeyed God, when they worshiped God, they were blessed and it went well for them. And when they walked away from God and they disobeyed God, it did not go well for them. That's how they wound up in exile. Now listen, God hasn't changed. God is still a covenant-keeping God. He only relates to human beings through a covenant. And there's only two covenants now that you can relate to God through. Number one is called the covenant of works. And that is, you'll be judged based upon your works. If you obey God perfectly your whole entire life, you'll receive eternal life. If not, you'll receive eternal damnation. That's the covenant of works. The second one is called the covenant of grace, or you could call it the new covenant. And the new covenant is, We cannot obey God perfectly. We fail over and over and over. So God in his wisdom and in his grace sent his own son to be born of a woman to live a sinless life that we couldn't live and to pay the punishment for our sins that we deserve, namely death and death on a cross. And Jesus died our death for us on the cross so that he could gift us by grace his own righteousness and we could receive that righteousness and now walk into a new relationship with God, standing in the righteousness of Christ, and we can be reconciled to that holy God forever and ever and ever and ever. We receive an eternal redemption, the book of Hebrews tells us. So that's the only way human beings can relate to God. Covenant of works, I'll try it on my own the city that's built on the self, right? Or the city built on God. I put everything, I put everything, I push all my chips onto the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. My only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful creator, Jesus Christ. My faithful redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's the only two ways we can relate to God. And if you respond this morning to what Jesus has already done for you, what our covenant-keeping God has already done for you. He's, He's given us his word so that we can know him. He's given us his son so that we can be forgiven of all our sins. He's given us his spirit so that we can walk with him and know his fatherly love. God has already done all of that for us. It's all a gift of grace done in the past for us. And what are we to do in response? We are to love him and we are to obey him in all things. Nehemiah goes on in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. So God, I'm coming to you, the covenant keeping God, I'm coming to you the way you've told me to come to you through the covenant. And now I'm asking that you hear me, I'm asking that you see me. to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant. So he's praying for Israel. He's not in Israel, right? He's not in Jerusalem. He's praying for them. Keep reading. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted, look at this, very corruptly against you, (coughs) excuse me, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules, commandments, statutes, and rules, all of the Pentateuch, all of the Old Testament, all of the Torah, okay? That's what he's talking about. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the Old Testament. We have not obeyed it. So we've broken covenant is what he's saying. We've broken covenant with the God of the universe. He says this, he remembers the covenant. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. So he recognizes the reason we're in exile and the reason Jerusalem is torn down, it's our fault and our forefathers' fault. We walked away from the covenant. But he also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there, the city of God. So here's the deal. Nehemiah's recognizing Jews are spread across all the middle and near east. They're all over the place by Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus and all this kind of stuff. And that was a fulfillment of breaking the covenant. If you break the covenant, you're going to be scattered. But the covenant also said, if you return to me, he will gather you from all the farthest parts of the earth, even heaven, and he will bring you together and he'll make you a city where he will dwell there. Nehemiah is standing on the promises of God here. Verse 10 They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, some of these words here, oh man. They barely make sense to us. See, we live in the most individualistic culture that has ever existed on the face of the planet. We have been taught for generations that we are first and foremost individuals. Above all, keep your individuality. Be unique, be you, be special. Be that, you know, that one snowflake that never recreated. So in our society, what matters most is not your family or your church or your religion, What matters most, what is ultimate, is that you remain an individual with as little strings attached as possible. So when I read these texts and I hear him saying, He's confessing the sins of his people. He's confessing the sins of Israel. He's saying, me and my father's house, we've also sinned. There is this collective idea. There is this collective consciousness in Nehemiah that he knows he's united to his past. He's united to his people. He's united to his city. He's united to those who share his faith that trumps his individuality. So he sees his city go bad and he's like, that's my fault too. And his heart's broken for it. I got to be honest. I think many of us, at least for me, when I see our city going bad, I can tend to say, "What what does that have to do with me? Crazy people being crazy. I didn't do that. I'm not doing that. We forget that we are in a covenant with God. Now, I want to, I want to break this down for us a little bit. We are in a, if you're in Christ, you are in a covenant with God, okay? Jesus Christ is the mediator of that covenant. That means we have a responsibility to love Him above all things, to know His word, and obey it. That is our individual response to his covenantal love. We are to love him. We are to worship him. We are to know him and obey him, okay? But there are other covenants. If you are married in here, you also have a covenant between your wife and God, and you, or husband and God, and you are, have made a covenant to love them, men, to love your wife like you love yourself, to lay your life down like Christ did for the church. And wives, you are called to honor your husband, and to submit to his leadership like Christ did to the Father. You've made a covenant with your spouse. We are covenantal here, right? You've also, if you're a church member, Ben talked about membership coming up, we make covenant together with one another as the body of Christ. And we we covenant, the elders covenant together to shepherd you in a certain way and to obey certain things and to treat you certain ways and to offer certain things for you, to teach you the word and teach right doctrine, and and to love you, and to shepherd you, and to marry you, and to to bury you when when that time comes, we've made a covenant to do that. And the members, covenant to obey God, and to live in community, and to be on mission, and to, 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 to do ministry, and all the different things in our membership covenant. We make a covenant to help each other's children follow Jesus, right? We make all of these covenants. Now listen, here's the reality. We break these covenants. But it doesn't make the covenant null and void. This is why every single Sunday, this Sunday is called a covenantal renewal ceremony. You get called in by God, and what do you do? You confess your sins. And what does he do? He forgives you of your sins. Again, it reminds you that he's forgiven all of your sins. We're renewing the covenant. Every single Sunday, we come to God and said, I screwed up again, I walked away again, and God says, I know, but I welcome you back because I give you grace, because you're coming through the son of my son, Jesus Christ, every week. This is why we confess our sins over and over and we can do it with joy on our face because God has absolved us of all of our sins and we are in right fellowship with him, not because of our obedience, because of Jesus, the perfect mediator of the perfect covenant. It's the best thing we could do in front of a watching world out there. They come in here, I want them to hear us confessing our sins first. We're kneeling down. We're giving up our self-will the love of God. We're saying, you rule us, God. We don't rule ourselves. Not our own opinions, God. Your word. But did you also know that we have a covenant with one another as citizens in the state of Iowa? That last one might catch you by surprise. Especially those who believe what's been taught in schools for literal decades, that there is a, quote, wall of separation between the church and state to prevent any religion from influencing government whatsoever. It's a horrible interpretation of a private letter Thomas Jefferson used, where he used those words, but it's not in the Constitution at all. No. Have you ever read our Constitution? The state of Iowa's Constitution? written in 1857 and ratified over and over and amended and over and over. But this is how our constitution, our covenant to be a citizen in the state of Iowa, right? This is how our constitution begins. We, the people of the state of Iowa, grateful to the supreme being for the blessings hitherto enjoyed and feeling our dependence on him For a continuation of those blessings do ordain and establish a free and independent government by the state of Isle. See, that's how our founders started our declaration, started our, I'm sorry, our constitution. The writers of of our state constitution knew that God was still a covenant-keeping God. They saw his hand in in the founding of our state and they knew that if our state was going to continue to remain free and to remain blessed we owed our allegiance and our thankfulness to God and we still do we still do as we ignore our founding, as we ignore our constitution, as we ignore the covenant that we have to live as the city of God on this earth in the city of man, as we ignore that and as we sit on our hands and as we just, we don't do anything about it, yes, people are gonna walk away from God and our culture is gonna continue to, to decline. But maybe, just maybe, if God would give us a heart like Nehemiah, we could cry out to God and say, God, we've done it, we've failed. We've, we've walked away from your covenant we've walked away from your statutes we haven't been teaching our kids the word of God we didn't even know that we could do this in the public square we didn't even know we could do this in public schools we didn't even know so we've given up right after right after right father we repent we repent You are king of the universe. You are king of Iowa. You are king of Davenport. You are king of our neighborhood. You are king of our home. You are king of our heart. You are king. Would you break my heart for this city and would you do a work of renewal here in it? We we can't do it. We are powerless. We are a minority. We could never do it in our own strength. But God, you can. Nehemiah ends like this in verse 11. Oh Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, this is so interesting because we don't know the backstory of Nehemiah. Where did Nehemiah go to school? How did Nehemiah's parents raise him? How did he learn the word of God? How did he learn the story of redemption? How did he become such an amazing man? We don't know, but this is what God does. God works in the dark. God works in the secret. God works in the backwoods, nowhere towns of this world. And he shapes men for this kind of moment. And then these men in humble dependence upon him say, God, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do what I think you're calling me to do. Even though I have no, I have no guarantee that this is going to work. And God gives a man, a humble man, a boldness and a courage to step out and do something that could look really foolish to the world unless God's in it. And that's what Nehemiah is about to do. Nehemiah is literally, this whole chapter is like setting it up. One of the most amazing stories in the Bible, I think. He's setting up this reality of, God, I think I'm here for a reason. I think I'm an attorney for a reason. I think I'm in this position in my work for a reason. I think I'm a teacher for a reason. I think I'm a housewife for a reason. I think I'm a mother and a father for a reason. I think I'm a pastor for a reason. I think you have raised me up for such a time as this, and my experience, and my education, and my knowledge of the Word of God, I think maybe you can do something special in this moment. Would you give me success? Well, we're going to find out next week, if God said no, then he would have been killed. I don't want to ruin it for you, but God says yes. That's what's coming. And it's going to be a really harrowing story and journey and difficult, and it's going to be a blessing for us. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you that we're not here by our own strength, our own morality, our own ethics. We can't swagger into this room and worship you. We're brought in by the Spirit of God and we're given grace in Jesus. I pray for those who've never put their faith in you, they've never heard this idea of two covenants with God and they could come to you not in their own works and not in their own own self, but they could come to you through Jesus. I pray that you would give them faith this morning, that you've forgiven all their sins and, and they'd put their faith on Jesus Christ. Father, for all the Christians in this room who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you've given us a covenant renewal ceremony that we get to do every single week, a sacrament that we get to do every single week to remind us once again that we have been forgiven, our sins have been paid for, we are a part of the city of God, and God is so near to us as this bread and this wine goes into our body, God is more near to us than these elements are into ourself. You are in us by your spirit, and you'll leave with us today as we go and work for the city of God in the city of Cities of the the Quad Cities here, Father. So would you communicate your grace to your people through your fatherly hand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.